I'm absolutely convinced that all men, including you and I, have hidden potential that's not been tapped into. The team and I have designed a quiz for you to work out what that could be, and there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end, but for now, enjoy the episode. And then he uttered the words, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave. We're going to have to sell this place. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Some memories live more vividly in our minds than others, but there's nothing quite like remembering the long, hot summers of childhood, treasured time spent with the people we love most in the world. James, now a specialist in forest restoration, who works and lives for the joys of nature through the Miyawaki method of soil preparation, and his family were living in Villefranche, an idyllic and picturesque town located near the French-Italian border of the Alps, when his world as he knew it was about to turn upside down. So I'm with my dad. We're building dry stone walls in the bright sunshine early morning. I can still remember the smell of wood smoke on the air, the feel of grass under my feet. My father taught me so much about the connections to nature and also working with nature. And everything was in that perfect moment, really, where you don't want to be anywhere else, even as a child, feeling safe, feeling connected, being with someone that you love. And I don't get enough time with my dad, like a lot of children. He worked one side, I'm working the other. And we're just working together, restoring this wall. Suddenly I remember my father turning to me, telling me that he had some news, that there was something he wanted to say. I thought it was going to be something nice. And then he uttered the words, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave. We're going to have to sell this place. The feelings were of disbelief. That sense of when someone tells you something you don't want to hear, you often don't accept it. This sense of like the world around me standing still, like this beautiful kind of nature, these trees, these forests, everything I can remember it standing still. And the sense of cold, like the kind of heat draining out of your body when you really hear something that you just don't want to hear. So I say, but dad, this can't be possible. We have all these dry stone walls to build, we have all these forests to clear and tidy. We can't, there's too much work to do. His reply was, we have to. It's financial, we have to, I don't want to sell, but we're gonna have to give this up. Yeah, I'm a big boy now, Dad. I can make a salary, I can earn money, we all can. There's ways we can make this work. I remember like almost like a, a kind grin coming up on his face that was kind of like an acceptance of my ignorance that he wouldn't want to put me down. But for him, it was like, I love your ideas, Fred, and I wish we could stay. I love it here myself, but we're going to have to leave Villefranche and you'll have to go back to your boarding school and life continues. But no, Dad, no, I can't, please. So this sense of dread, this cold sense of those two words I probably hated more than any other, which was boarding school. Look, Fred, I'm sorry, but that's that. That's the decision. I have to make it for financial reasons. I love your ideas, but that's it. We're going to have to go. End of story. And before I know it, next day, we're off. We're leaving France. We're driving north, leaving what I considered my beautiful home behind. 
And then immediately, without any respite, we're off the ferry, back into the grey cloud of the UK, grabbing everything that I need, and we're off to Hallow School in Dorset, pulling in through the big black metal gates, heading down the long black drive, this sense of like a hammer house of horror, this dark building at the end of the road that's going to be my home now for a while. Everything's dark, everything's silent, everything's serious. I remember it being a really horrible day. It's wet, it's damp, it's miserable. You can hardly kind of see anything. The handbrake of the car goes on, which is almost like a finite thing. When the handbrake of a car goes on, we step out of the car. Heistmaster, Mr. Jones. Godfrey Fawcett, come on, grab your bags, get in line with all the other boys. Dinner soon. So these summer holidays in Villefranche, with your parents, with your family, it's almost like parents plus nature equals freedom and liberation. And then you come back to the UK and your schooling is all about big black gates, hammer house of horror, as you said in the story, and this feeling of prison. I almost had this sort of feeling of Shawshank Redemption kind of coming into my mind. Yeah, I think very much so. It, it, it's like extremes, isn't it? You're going from one extreme where you've got choice, where you have freedom, where you have connection into something that is like a prison. You know, you have no real say in what you do. Everything's organized for you. There's kind of no initiative, no connection. Um, everything's forced on you. Where in when I was in France and everything, it's like, it was an interplay. It was like an interplay with, with family and it was an interplay with nature. There was no kind of force. There was no pressure. There was no push. You had this freedom to kind of float as you want in a way. And then we come back and it's like, as you say, like through the big back gates, everything's arranged. Everything's like aggressive. And again, you know, very masculine. It's a very masculine environment. Um, it's stiff upper lip and it's, shouting and it's it's you know you've got to be doing well at sport to be part of the team and everything so it's these two real extremes mm. and in france you had this sovereignty over your days you could do whatever you wanted to do within reason of course because i know you helped out your dad the thing is you wanted to do that exactly i was doing at that moment exactly what i wanted to do in life i could choose i didn't have to go and build dry stone walls or or clear the ground. It's what I wanted to do. I, 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 you know, it was instinctive. I didn't think I wanted to be in nature. I just wanted to be in nature because that's where I felt content. And it's just that, like you're saying, that sovereignty, you know, it, it's being able to choose even as a child what you want to do. And of course, like we're saying, you know, kids have to, we have to keep them in line. Otherwise, they, you know, we don't want them sticking their fingers in an electric socket or something like this. You've got to tell kids not what to do. But, we, you know, we focus so much too much on no rather than, than you know, encouraging with yeses. You know, we instinctively in schools like that, boarding schools, it's no. Like everything's no. And kids need that sovereignty. And, and, and they love when we work with kids because we work, I've worked a lot with kids with the projects I do. They, it, this kind of life comes out of them when, when you work with them. You know, they come out of classrooms and, and they're a bit anxious, a bit nervous. Give them half an hour planting. They're throwing 
um, worms at each other. They're laughing. They're jumping around. And it's like they've reclaimed the real part of themselves that, that's kind of bashed out by society and, and schools. These two worlds are just so polar opposite. You've got great experience in France, bad experience in the UK. Yes, in France, which is the majority, no is the majority in, in the UK. I mean, it, they couldn't be more different. Completely. Like, like literally like chalk and cheese. It really is. Yeah, that was why it was so hard to accept in a way. It's like, you know, if it was going back to something that was reasonable, then it would be okay. But it's literally kind of like, you know, painting the picture of what you don't want to do is what I was having to go and do. Um, and so it, in a way, it amplified France even more because, because you know, the, the, the focus on something negative makes the positive even more positive as well. Well, you're from the UK, but France sounds like home when you were 12 years old. Your real home in your heart and physically speaking, but the majority of your time was spent in the UK in a place you didn't want to be. Exactly. I mean, I'm sort of in the UK because I was born there, but you say like my heart and my soul resided much more in France. To this day, you know, like if I think about the south of France and recall things from there, I, it still like brings me a sense of happiness. Like I have this strange thing whereby if I smell wood smoke, I instinctively think of France. I instinctively think of being a child in France because we used to have bonfires. Like with my dad, with my family, we'd have these big bonfires on cold mornings. And you'd have this like, you know, smell of wood smoke that's really evocative. That's something very ancestral, I think. It kind of conjures up something in us from our past. And so if I smell a wood smoke now, bang, I'm straight back in France. Like literally, it's, it's almost like I've been teleported back there. The power of smell, it should never be understated. My God, I think it's the most evocative sense, actually, for taking you somewhere. It's so true. I've got a, a watch that my grandfather gave me probably 25 years ago, and it's in this case. And it was an engagement present that my grandma gave my granddad. And the beauty of that box and that watch is every time I open it, I smell the home that my grandparents lived in. And that house that was in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, was sold many years ago when, when my grandma died, maybe 10, 11 years ago. But I can just teleport myself or transport myself back in time. As soon as I open that box, it's like I'm opening this box into a world that doesn't exist anymore. But I could just go back there and it just brings back all these memories. And like you say, it's very evocative. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Like, like you say, it literally takes you back there. Literally, like, like transports you back to, to a previous happy time. So it's an incredibly strong, incredibly strong thing. Yeah. And I think we underestimate how much of our inner children are still inside us. You know, the, the, the 10 year old James, the 15 year old, so on and so forth. They're still in you right now. And the same, same for me, but we, sometimes we just, we, we forget that just because we're in our thirties, forties, fifties, whatever as we're adults. We think those people are not there and they, they are there and uh, we, we need to keep serving them. And we are serving them through smells and through what we hear and so on. You know, we sometimes think now that, that, you know, the things that we have, the emotions that we have as kids, things like joy, creativity, 
that we have to slightly lock away, that maybe we have a sense of guilt at feeling joy. Because, you know, it's, it's a hard old world out there at the moment, isn't it? You know, it, it, the news is negative. You want to kind of bury your head a lot of the time. But that sense of joy is like such a high vibrational emotion. Creativity, like we need more creativity in the world. Kids' creativity is great because their minds just go and and they create without boundaries. But now we kind of limit our creativity because we can't think it's it's possible. And kind of for me with nature, I've learned a lot from people who think without boundaries, who let their creativity go. And, and in their lifetimes, they achieve amazing things. But the thing they've done is to step into their creativity and take the boundaries off. And I think there's a big lesson there for all of us about about how we can, you know, perceive life and and have a positive effect. And there's an ancestral aspect to it. You know, we should, we instinctively, ancestrally learn from our parents. We learn from our clans. We learn from those safe people around us and from olders. And, you know, we've lost that. We now, like in our society in the West now, we think old people, you stick them in a home and forget about them. Where, where the cultures that are the strongest, the indigenous ones, they respect age because you have wisdom and creativity with age, and we've lost that. Um, and I think one of the most powerful things, you know, that we can do is when you link young people to old people, you know, when you can share, if you can get someone who's lived a life sharing their knowledge with a child, there's kind of this incredibly strong connections. Again, particularly with nature, if you've got someone who understands how an ecosystem works you can show a child the magic of nature because magic does exist within nature those everything connects on so many levels and and those kids come to life it's it, it's wonderful to see it's like recreating something in them that's dormant really yeah i completely agree and you look at people older people who are in nursing homes in their 70s and 80s think of all the wisdom that they've generated over the years and it's just not being utilized and some of these young kids they could learn from the mistakes made from these adults in their 70s and 80s but no we stick them in a nursing home but we don't give access to kids like that anymore one of my dreams in life is to try and take children young and educate them about nature and about reforestation because again i don't think i think we underestimate the power that children can make you know, we think, okay, if you want to plant a forest, if you want to do restoration, if you want to get an ecosystem restoration, you've got to be 20, you've got to go to university. Um, it's rubbish. Take a child at 10 years old who's instinctive, show them the techniques, and they can go off and, and turn their garden into a forest, get their friends together. And for me, that that's something that, that I would love to do in my life is to educate children to empower themselves in nature so that they can make change, so that they don't sit there feeling like less hope and hope and hope, but actually they can they can take those steps themselves. It almost feels like you're passing on the lessons that your father gave to you to other kids. Very similar, exactly, exactly. I mean, no one owns knowledge in life, don't we? We're kind of guardians of knowledge and we pass it on and we should pass it on. You know, we should pass on everything we know. Like you said before about mistakes, we should pass on our mistakes. You know, because you learn so much in the moment of a mistake. You learn so much more when you make a mistake. I mean, I make mistakes with my work all the time, but I learn from it. You know, you observe it. Think, well, why didn't that work? 
And then that kind of like, you know, improves your mindset, you come up with a solution. Um, and it's exactly that. It's that kind of flow of information down through, through generations. So James, I didn't go to boarding school, but when you were saying all of this about leaving boarding school and going to France and, and vice versa, and the freedom element of being in your summer holidays, building dry stone walls, and then going back to school and having this regimentation, how do you think we change the education system, in your opinion, from everything that you've learned, everything you've experienced as a kid, and then everything you've experienced as a parent watching your own kids go to school? Because there's some parts of it, some aspects of it that do work, and there's absolutely some parts of it that do not work. Why should kids have this feeling of, I've been released from prison? Why, why should we have that in society? Why? Why should kids feel that education and learning in an environment with teachers feel like prison? Why does it have to feel that way? And it does. I think, like you're saying, you, you, you can see the release in kids when they run out of school or they run out of playtime. I mean, kids go to school, sit in their lessons, and then look forward to playtime, don't they? So they can run around and be kids. Um, and, <laughs> and I think it's... Um, I honestly, I know it's a very simple thing to say. I just don't think we listen enough. Schools, you know, it's dogmatic. It's talking at kids. It's repeating the same facts that you repeated to the year before. Um, and I think we need to listen to kids more. That would be the, so the two key things, I think, be to listen, get the kids point of view, get them interactive, let them be creative. Don't necessarily say, no, that's wrong. You know, if you think about it, like kids can't be creative at school. I mean, they do a bit of art, but there's no, there's no kind of space in there for, for, for free thinking. It's like, this is right, that's wrong. It's very black and white. You can't go into that gray creative stage. The dreaded red pen. This is correct. This is wrong. Why did you do this? You've made that mistake. Yeah, exactly. Why, why, why have you got 30% in physics? Well, probably because you're not good at physics and you'll never use it in your life. I mean, it's, it's you know, every, as they say, every child, every person has a genius inside them, but we just need to locate where that genius is. And, and if education did that more, we could find those, those specific things within kids. It might be art. It might be healing. It might be that they work with nature. It might be that they're scientifically brilliant. It might be that They've got an innovator. They might be a mediator. But each, each of every child in the world is something unique in them, a gift that they can offer. But we don't unlock it. That's the problem with education. I had situations at school where it was a boring subject traditionally for me. But because there was an engaging, charismatic teacher and they taught it in a way that I understood or, the, or in a way that actually sounded interesting with certain analogies that I could relate to, I said, actually, this subject is not as bad as I thought. It's quite staggering, isn't it? The effect like a teacher can have on a child. I mean, you can take two different teachers, you could take physics, and that child that might get 20% might get 80 or 90% with the right teacher. Yeah. And then it could completely change their mindset from previously, I'm bad at this subject, I can't do it, I don't have the ability to actually, I have surprised myself and I got 80% this time. It mustn't be my ability it must be my level of enthusiasm and passion exactly and and it's you know and children are so affected by what we say 
you know, if we're like, that's not good enough, you're not, you know, you haven't done well, you've got to try harder. You know, it's, it's energetically kids take that on and they believe it. Do you know what I mean? So, so you're locking down that potential in them again by, by negativity. My big thought about this episode after recording it and pondering about it afterwards was how do we stop schools seeming like prisons for kids, places they don't want to go to? Now, I'm not saying this is for all kids, but many do feel like this and they say this about their school life afterwards and even during it. How do we cultivate a nourishing environment for kids in schools that allows them to flourish and feel all the things that James felt when he was in France helping his dad? His dad felt like more of a teacher than his actual school teachers did. What characteristics do you think he portrayed as a man over his housemaster that led him to become more inspired to learn? From my experience, the men I've learned from most in my life have had patience, they've had empathy and understanding because there have been times when people might have described me as a slow learner, particularly at primary school. I remember being in special needs class in my first primary school from reception up to around about year two and then when I moved to a new school, I was put with a one-to-one -one retired male teacher who had come in to lend a hand and do some extra work. He had all the skills and all the characteristics that you'd hope for in a good teacher. And after a short while working with him, I was actually transferred to the top set. It just goes to show that the power of a good teacher can really shape your future as a man. And I was actually racking my brains to remember what his actual name was, but that doesn't matter. It's about the impact that he made on me and my life and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. Because before then, I had a teacher at the first primary school I was at that had no patience for me. We did not see eye to eye. And that whole experience left me feeling like I was stupid and I wasn't a good learner, which is absolutely the things that you don't want kids to feel about themselves after going through education, right? I think having that one-to-one -one contact time with a male role model is incredibly important. But unfortunately, a lot of our education systems lack those resources to provide this kind of learning environment. If you look at, I don't know, some Amish communities in the US, they have much smaller learning environments with a mix of ages all in one class. Obviously, there are pros and cons to living your life in this way, but that's not to say that there aren't benefits to this style of teaching. In the UK, teachers are really struggling with sometimes 40 kids in one class. How could you give adequate support to every single child in that class when you've got so much to handle, especially with all the discipline issues that certain kids can provide as well. Some kids are not meant to be sat in a seat and expected to focus all day. I mean, I've got ADHD, so it was very difficult for me to actually be able to sit still and learn with that kind of mode of teaching. Who have been the men in your life who have shaped you the most through your learning? And what characteristics did they show? How can you be a better role model and teacher for the next generation of men coming through. Before you go, let me tell you about our man test. The team and I created it with the belief that every man has hidden, untapped potential, and I want to help you discover what it could be. Let's face it, we've all got dreams and aspirations, but the stresses of life can get in the way. I know I've been there myself. As men, each one of us has skills and knowledge that sets us apart from the rest. It's about discovering what they are and making the most of them. The man test is simple. It takes less than three minutes and will help you discover your true strengths and talents. 
by working out what kind of modern man you really are. Find the link in the show notes and take the man test today. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.